All right, good morning Emmaus, if you would, take your Bible and open to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 this morning. If you're watching online, uh, I hope that at home your Bible is just beginning to automatically fall open to the book of Galatians. We're going to continue to go through this sermon series for the weeks ahead. If you're here with us in person uh, and you have not been able to pick up one of those Galatians scripture journals, and that would be of interest to you, you can pick up one of those in, in the lobby as well as we begin to work our way through Galatians. And then we're also trying to read a chapter from Romans each week, putting together a lot of those theological themes from Galatians and Romans, and we're reading through that. So as you think about next week and, and looking ahead, I know it's hard to think one day at a time, much less a, a week ahead, but as you think about next week, we're going to be looking at the end of Galatians 2. And I hope you'll read that passage before next week because... In many ways, the end of Galatians 2 contains Paul's primary theological point that he's trying to get forward in the book of Galatians. Today is Paul's primary, what we call narrative storytelling point in Galatians. Next week, he's going to sum it up with this theological point that then launches into the rest of the book. And so if you're reading ahead with us, know that that's what we're going to be looking at next week. Also, Jim, when he was up here earlier, Mentioned that you can always use that text message feature to reach out to us. I want you to have my email address uh, as well if you're watching at home. You send me an email anytime if you have questions just about ministry or what God's doing in your life or about the book of Galatians. We want to be able to reach out to you that way. And, And one final thing before we read these verses. If you're in the room this morning and God is at work in your life, if you are here and you have never trusted in Jesus for salvation... If you need prayer for your family or something going on in your life, at the end of the sermon, after I pray for us and dismiss, I stay right up here at the front. And so even though we're not playing a song at the end right now because of the way the service is set up, we never want to hear God's word. We never want to hear the gospel proclaimed and just say, well, we'll just go home and and move on with life. If God is doing something in your life and if you need someone to pray for you, don't leave this place. If you're at home listening, Reach out to someone. Send me an email. When we hear God's word proclaimed, when we hear the gospel, we want to respond to it. And, and let me just be honest with you. The passage this morning, it holds some hard truths, uh, especially for where we are in the world. And so we want our hearts to be prepared for that. Galatians chapter 2. Let's read this scripture, and, and then we're going we're gonna to talk through its, its implication in our lives. But when Cephas, and when you see Cephas, if Peter makes more sense, that's who we're talking about. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray together just for a moment as we start. Father, as Jaron prayed earlier, as we sang together, God, I pray that our hearts would be prepared to hear your word, uh, these things that we know to be true, God, that we would act in accordance with them. 
And God, I pray that the message and the power of the gospel would transform the way we live as a church. And as Jim prayed earlier, not just how we live as a church here, but how we live as we go from this place and we we care for our neighbors and we reach into the nations with the good news of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody know what this place is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field fighting the same battle we're still fighting among ourselves today. This green field right here was painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. Listen and take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed, just as they were. I don't care if you like each other, but you will learn to respect each other. And maybe, I don't know, just maybe, we'll learn to play this game like men. Now, that speech from Denzel Washington in the Remember the Titans movie, it seems really important right now. Because let's be honest, we're divided by race and ethnicity, we're divided by politics and economics, we're divided by masks and anthems, and it's not bad to have a difference of opinion. It's not bad to disagree. But when every level three disagreement becomes a level 10 disagreement, when disagreements become a type of division that pushes everything to the extreme, when we live in a polarized world that sets up not only emotional boundaries between people, but physical boundaries between people, we have to ask ourselves as the church, what does God's word have to say to that? Where does the gospel of Jesus Christ come into this discussion? Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul, as he's helping the Galatians work through what they're facing, he tells them, he says that when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now here, Paul is doing something very similar to what he did in the verses we looked at last week. He is giving the Galatians an example of something that he dealt with because he thinks that that example is going to help them make sense of the false teachers that are coming in to their area. And so he's going to tell them a story about a time when Peter came to Antioch, and Paul does not mince language here, does he? He says that I opposed him to his face. Now, before we read too much anger into that, uh, Paul very likely was doing this with tears when his in his eyes. He was doing this with a broken heart. But he says that Peter, because of his actions, he stood condemned, meaning he is not living in accordance with the way of God, that whatever Peter has done is a very, very serious matter in Paul's eyes here. Remember, if you're not familiar with the story of Peter, and we'll pick up a little bit more of this along the way, but if you're not familiar with Peter, Peter is one of the earliest disciples of Jesus. Uh, Peter is someone that many of you, I know, feel like kinship with, that he's a bit impulsive. Uh, He often uh, speaks before he thinks about what he's going to say. But he's also a man of great wisdom, of great faith, of great leadership. 
Uh, He's involved in the early church. He writes a couple of letters in the New Testament. He's most likely the source for the Gospel of Mark, giving Mark the material that that is used there. So Peter is a key figure. But not only Peter here, I want to make sure we understand Antioch. Because Antioch is going to become a very important place as we go through these verses this morning. When you think about the location of Antioch, if you just pull out your phone and look at Google Maps, Antioch is directly west of modern-day Aleppo. So if you pull up on Google Maps, Aleppo, Syria, and you look just west, you're going to see a town where if you look at the words that is given on Google Maps today, it's going to sound very much like Antioch when you look at it. And so it's just west of modern-day Aleppo, north of Jerusalem. Antioch was a prominent city in the ancient world. It's a free city. There's a lot of self-governance there. It's a cosmopolitan city. It's known for being very diverse. The Jewish-Gentile relationships in Antioch were generally better than what you found in other areas. So this is a very diverse city. It's a city with a lot of Jewish and Gentile mixture going on there in, in this area. And I think there's a verse, Acts chapter 13, verse 1, that sums up Antioch really well. Acts 13, 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene is located in North Africa, Menaean, who is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. <laughs> now, if you think that your Sunday school has an electic mix of people in there, uh, so this group of leaders at Antioch you're going to have two black gentlemen, two, two African men. You're going to have a political insider with Menaean, And then you've got Barnabas and Saul on both sides of that as early Jewish leaders in the church. And this is what is described as the leadership at, at Antioch. Now, I hope this is an encouragement to you. Because if you don't know this story, the very first Baptist church established in what we know of as Oklahoma. It would have been Indian territory at the time. But the very first Baptist church established in Oklahoma was established in 1832 at Muskogee. And this first Baptist church that was established was a Creek couple, three African Americans, and one white missionary couple. So you think of Baptist life in Oklahoma and what that looked like in the very beginning. A Creek couple three African-Americans and one white missionary couple coming together to form the first Baptist church in what we know of as Oklahoma. That mirrors, I think, really well what you see here in in Acts 13.1 with this early church in Antioch. Now, look at where this leads in the next verse. When you get to verse 12, you start to see how the story develops. Verse 12, For before the time when certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Okay, so make sure you understand the setup of the story here. Peter had been in Antioch for some time, and it was his habit during this time to eat with the Gentiles. Peter, a Jewish man, a leader in the early church there in Jerusalem, is spending time in Antioch, and it is his habit to eat with the Gentiles. When you think about the ancient world, it's hard to overestimate how important it was to eat together and what that symbolized. When you came together and you ate with someone, this symbolized friendship. This symbolized I care for you. And to eat with someone and pull away from that relationship, that was a 
terrible disrespect, a terrible affront to say, I'm going to eat with you and I'm pulled away. If you were invited to eat with someone and not to eat with them, that was a sign of great disrespect. Uh, maybe give you an ex- illustration of this. The summer after I graduated from OBU in 2004, so the summer after I graduated college, I spent that summer in Southeast Asia uh, doing, doing mission work. And this group of students that we were teaching English and trying to do Bible studies with, one time they said, teachers, we want you to come and eat with us at, at our home. At this point, we don't have a choice. Like, we, we have to go and, and take up this offer to come and eat with these students. And so we go, and, and in this moment of going to eat with them at their home, I find myself staring at a fish that's staring back at me. <laughs> uh, so this fish is still fully in, in perfect fish shape, though it's been cooked a little bit. Um, they also put before us a bowl of of soup that looked like if you took your dinner bowl and you put it beneath the concrete pipe coming out of the back of the concrete truck and they just kind of poured it in there. That was kind of what the, the soup looked like. And, and so one of my friends who was with us on this trip, he's like, oh, so he just, he's eating this as fast as he can because he knows we have no choice. We have to get this food down because it'd be terribly disrespectful if we didn't eat it. So he's just eating this food and they're like, oh, teacher, you like very much. And they went and got him a huge bowl and brought him another, another bowl. So he has a huge bowl of this soup and we're like all slowing down trying to just barely choke this, choke this food down. To, to eat with someone is a sign of respect, of friendship. You think about the ministry of Jesus. What got Jesus in trouble with people? He ate with people that others said you shouldn't be eating with them. That when Jesus fed the 5,000, he was doing that in a primarily Jewish context. When he fed the 4,000, he's doing that in a primarily Gentile context to say, I'm going to provide, I'm going to eat with, I'm going to break bread with a wide variety of groups. Now, on top of all that, who should have understood the theological foundation of eating with Gentiles? It's Peter, because you have the Acts chapter 10 story. Now, we're not going to read the whole Acts chapter 10 story, but this week with your kids at home, I'd encourage you to open up the Bible or just reread this story in Acts chapter 10. Acts 10 is the famous Cornelius story. So Cornelius is a Roman soldier. He is a Gentile. And Cornelius has this vision in which he's supposed to invite Peter to come to his house. At the same time, Peter has a vision. It's that famous vision from kids' Sunday school of the sheet coming down from heaven. And there are all these unclean animals in the sheet. And I know many of you that have taught kids' Sunday school, you've probably acted out or portrayed this story in some way. But the sheet is coming down. And Peter's told to get up and to kill and to eat. And he says, no way, I can't eat that. In the process, though, God reveals to him that what he thought was to be a barrier to eating with others, to interacting with others, that is done away with in Christ. And so he goes and he eats with Cornelius' family, and not only does he eat with them, what does he do? He shares the message of Jesus as the Messiah. And this kinship is born between Cornelius' family and Peter. So remember, that's in the background of Peter's life. Peter has experienced that. Now watch what he does at the end of verse 12. So here's Peter, who's in the habit of eating, but he says that when these men from James, from from Jerusalem, when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
feel the sadness of the end of verse 12? So here's Peter, an early leader in the church, who has been eating with the Gentiles, and this group from Jerusalem, this group from James, who was one of the earliest leaders in the Jerusalem church, they show up. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information exactly about this group, and there's disagreements about exactly what this group is all about, but we know for sure that they are coming from a very conservative, very traditional, and there's questions about whether or not they're actually believers in Jesus or not. Uh, Scholars go back and forth. Whatever the case is, they have not come to promote unity in the church. (laughs) That, for sure, we know. They have not come to promote unity. They have come to check on the situation and figure out why Peter is eating. Now, to understand the situation, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Greatest Showman. My illustration may not make perfect sense if you've never seen The Greatest Showman, the Hugh Jackman movie. But there is a scene in The Greatest Showman when Zac Efron's character, his character is P.T. Barnum's associate in the early show that they're doing there, and, and Zac Efron's character starts to kind of fall in love with this uh, acrobat who's played by a character named Zen- Zendaya. And Zendaya is a black woman. Uh, she comes from a poor background in the story. She's a part of the circus. And so you have this white, affluent man who starts to fall in love with this young, poor black girl, and they show up together one night at a concert in the movie, and, and they're holding hands. So this white man holding hands with this black lady, and his parents walk into the concert, and he looks over, and he makes eye contact with his parents, and he lets go of her hand in that moment. He separates himself from her out of fear of what his parents would think about the situation. Peter's situation here of separating from the Gentiles when the Jews show up, this is Peter sitting at the lunch table in the cafeteria and the cool kids walk in and he gets up from the table where he was sitting and he goes over to be with the cool kids because he doesn't want to be seen with this other group. You sense the the weight of this, right? Of of what's Peter doing? And then watch the, the ramifications of it in verse 13. What happens in verse 13? It says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This is the danger of toxic spiritual momentum. When one person, especially a leader, begins to act hypocritically and begins to go away from the gospel, it's shocking how quickly other people will begin to follow them. Other people here in the church at Antioch who had also been eating with the Gentiles, they see Peter acting hypocritically and they begin to go with him. And when a wave starts to go one way in a church, it is really hard to stop that wave because these people are going with Peter. And on top of that, you almost hear Paul crying as he writes the end of verse 13. He says, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That word led astray there is one of those words that reminds us that none of us act as rationally as we would like to think we act. It's a word about being carried away with your emotions. And so here, Barnabas, who knows better, even he is led astray by this situation. When you see someone going away from the gospel and you think, oh, not you too, how were you carried away by this? He knows better, but he begins to act hypocritically. How does Peter respond to that? Or how does Paul respond to that in verse 14? He says, 
that when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul sees through the situation and he sees that if Peter wins out in this situation, if Peter can back away from these Gentiles, what's going to happen is very quickly these Gentiles are going to feel like they are forced to live like Jews. They're going to force to be circumcised. They're going to be forced to do more than what the gospel requires. Now here's a question we need to ask ourselves this morning, Emmaus. Why exactly did Peter withdraw from eating with the Gentiles? That's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Why did Peter act hypocritically? He knew better. He had this vision and this experience with Cornelius in his background. He had the example of Jesus. He knew the gospel message. Why does he act hypocritically in this situation? And, and then the more difficult question is, why do we find ourselves doing the same thing? What causes divisions in the church? What causes us to back away from living according to the gospel? Well, let me give you three things that, that show up in these verses. Number one is that he has fear of the Jewish leaders, that his reputation is at stake. Back there at the end of verse 12, it says very simply that he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Here's what Peter finds himself with. He's in a situation where he is guaranteed to offend at least one group. Have you ever been in a situation at work or in church or in life where whatever you did, you were guaranteed to offend at least one group? In this situation, Peter can either offend these leaders from Jerusalem who have come up to check on the situation because he's going to keep eating with the Gentiles, or... He can offend the Gentiles by not eating with any, them anymore and following these leaders from Jerusalem. And what does he do? In order to not offend his white donors, he backs away from eating with his black friends. Very simply, that's exactly what he did. In order to not offend one group, he divides, he breaks away, and he goes with this leading group. Now, there's still another layer behind that question. Why, why is he feeling the need to do this? Why does he have this fear? In the mid-first century, among Judeans, among people living in this area around Jerusalem, there is a rise in nationalism, in nationalistic politics. And, and let me be very clear about what I mean by this. In the middle of the first century, what you have among the Judean people is this very strong sense of allegiance to nation, allegiance to one ethnicity, ethnicity, allegiance to one group that causes extreme separation from people not like them, where they're trying to build up independence for themselves, which means you have to push all the other groups to the side. And so there's intense polarization, there's intense division that's happening among Jews and Gentiles at this time. In this political climate, it's easier for Peter to go with the Jerusalem leaders because they have this nationalistic power behind them than it is to go with the Gentiles. Craig Keener has done a lot with this in his recent Galatians commentary. I want to read you something that Keener says about this. He says that in the face of rising nationalism in Judea, 
These people had begun to reflect the values dominant in the world around them, closing rank against outsiders. When we treat our nationalistic allegiances as stronger in practice than our membership in Christ's body, trouble always comes. Now, here's where we move this to contemporary life, and and I want to be careful because hear me out here. We are not talking here about the good gift of patriotism, a, a good and right gift for those who live in America. Patriotism is a good gift. But radical conservatism that leads to nationalism is toxic for the church. That when we live in a world that drives everyone to the extremes, and when we live in a world that causes polarization over this desire to protect traditions and to protect one group of people and hold on to one way of living, before we realize it, that mentality begins to affect the way we live as a church. And it begins to affect the gospel message. And these verses right here this morning should get our attention in a very, very big way. When we have to think about how do we respond to this as followers of Jesus in the 21st century. Because here's the real deal. At the end, Peter doesn't understand the disconnect between his actions and the gospel. Peter's thinking was probably, it's just a meal. What's the big deal? It's just business. What's the big deal? It's just politics. That's how things work. What's the big deal? It's just a social media post. What, what's the big deal? What are the consequences of this? In these verses, I see three consequences that I want us to pay attention to. And these consequences, on purpose, match our little up in and out thing that we do at Emmaus all the time. Here are the three consequences I see for what happens in these verses. There's a theological consequence. There's an internal church consequence. And then there's a consequence for doing missions. The theological consequence of what Peter is doing here is he is causing confusion about the gospel message. Because if Peter shows favoritism, does God show favoritism as well? If Peter doesn't eat with the Gentiles, then do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be made fully right with God? There is misunderstanding about what it means to be made right with God, and Peter is egging that on. He is causing confusion about the gospel. There are theological consequences to our behavior. Our behavior, especially when we act hypocritically, can end up driving people away from the Lord. Here's the other thing. Peter's actions are going to divide the church. Because here at Antioch, a place where people knew how to get along as Jews and Gentiles, if Peter withdraws from the Gentiles, what's going to happen? You're going to have a Gentile service and a Jewish service. Because there's all this political turmoil already going on in the world. Peter's going to take the Jews this way, and the Gentiles are going to go this way, and the church is going to be fractured by this. One of the biggest challenges we fi- face in church life is figuring, over, figuring out what we should divide over and what should not divide us. Um, our, our staff, every, every uh, well, I'd say two or three times a year, as a staff, we read books together just for theological training and ministry training. And the book that we're getting ready to start as a church staff is about this issue, finding the right hills to die on. What 
issue should divide a church? What do we stand on and say, there's no way that we're going to compromise on that issue? That's the integrity of the gospel. But then these other issues of, okay, now we can disagree on that. There's a way that we can live together within those things. Trying to figure out how this internal unity happens is really important. On this issue of, of church unity, just a reminder that the goal is unity, not uniformity. Adrian Rogers who continues to preach to many of, you, many of you beyond the grave. I know many of you listen to him throughout the week, one of the great Baptist preachers of all time. Adrian Rogers said, friends, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, not twins. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, not twins. The goal in church life is not that we all think the same, look the same, act the same. It's that our overwhelming unity is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we say nothing will divide us from that. The vision that begins to happen at the table, we will bring back together at the table because it's worth it in Christ. Then, don't miss the fact down here at the bottom, there's a missional danger because Antioch, as we saw earlier, man, I said that in like four syllables, but (laughs) uh, Antioch, which we saw earlier in, in Acts chapter 13, Antioch was primed to be the mission sending hub of the early church. Antioch was primed to send the gospel to the world. What more would Satan want to do than to cause disunity in the church that was primed to be the mission center for the gospel in the ancient world? Because if Peter withdraws at this point, this church that its very essence was about this diversity that allowed them to spread the gospel, the mission of the gospel was in danger at this point. And so that's the reason Paul steps in. The future mission of the church is at stake, and so Paul says, no, I have to, I have to stand up to Peter at this point. So that, that's the bad news. What's the good news? What are we going to do here at Emmaus? Let's talk about this, and, and I want to pray over us as a church because I know this is a heavy topic and there's a lot, a lot involved here. Let's respond to this. What's our way forward? Number one, we want to be known as Christians And for that label to reflect Jesus and his gospel. You know the cool thing about the church at Antioch? There's a great verse buried in Acts chapter 11 that says the early followers of Jesus were first called Christians where? At Antioch. They weren't known as Gentiles. They weren't known as Jews. They were known as Christians. So here's the easy question that's hard to answer. When people look at Emmaus, and they think about us, what is the primary label someone would give us? Would they see us and think those people are Christians? Or do we get caught up in situations where we begin to carry other labels because of what we stand for and what we live for? My hope at Emmaus is people would look at us and the only thing they could say is they're Christians. They believe in and they follow Jesus. That that is our primary label as the people of God. Number two, that we would display unity in Christ through the church. That unless it's a gospel issue that should divide us, that we will say, you know what? When the world around us is so polarized, that thinking is not going to dominate how we exist and how we live as a church. If anything, The unity of the church should impact how the world around us thinks about these issues. As a church, we're going to stay together. We're going to stick together. And then my favorite, number three, 
that we would advance the gospel beyond boundaries and not allow the mission to stop or change. One of the things that drew me and my family to Emmaus early on was the fact that God had positioned this church family to see the gospel go to the neighborhoods that have built up around us because of the great vision that those folks at First Baptist Moore had years ago to put this little church right here, these neighborhoods, and because we are also set up as a church to send the gospel to the nations. And we have a heritage that says that we have done that and we will continue to do that. My nightmare as a pastor is that we would allow things to cause disunity in the church that would stop that mission that God has placed before us. And so with everything we have, we say that we will remain committed to the mission of sending the gospel to our neighborhoods and to the nations. And we will do that built around the unity that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that you're committed to that, and I want you to know that I'm committed to that, but I also want you to know that we are living into, in a world and we are moving into months ahead where that's going to be a lot easier said than done. And so all I'm asking is that we come together around the good news of Jesus to do what God's placed in front of us. Let's pray together. Father, I know there's sometimes uh, when we read the Bible, there are questions about how do we take words from thousands of years ago and bring them into contemporary life. And, and then there's days like today when it's so obvious how you're speaking to us from your word. God, that in the mid-first century, there was a rise in political tension that threatened to cause disunity within the church. And in the 21st century, there is political tension that threatens to cause disunity in the church. And yet in this moment, in the name of Jesus, we stand together on the gospel. And God, we pray that you would do something in our midst, and we pray that you would do something through your church and the world that goes beyond anything that we could ever imagine. God, draw our hearts together around the good news of Jesus. And Father, I pray if there's anyone watching at home or anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus before, maybe they've looked at the church and they've seen disunity and been turned away, but God, I pray that they would look to Christ and find hope and salvation and eternal life. And God, use us as a church in that way in the years to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.